Principal Matters Podcast, episode 209. Hi, friends. This is Will Parker, host of Principal Matters, the school leaders podcast. Each week, we bring you inspiring, innovative, and imaginative ideas for your school leadership. This week, we're going to talk about supporting students and immigrant families during a pandemic with my special guest, Carolyn Satin Bajaj. Carolyn Satin Bajaj is an associate professor in the Gervitz Graduate School of Education at the University of California, Santa Barbara. And her research focuses on issues of educational access and equity for immigrant origin students. Her work includes studies of school choice policies, the educational impacts of immigration enforcement, and school leaders' responses to xenophobia and racism in school. She's the author of several books, including Unaccompanied Minors, Immigrants, Youth, School Choice, and the Pursuit of Equity. Carolyn Satin Bajaj, welcome to Principal Matters Podcast. Feel free to fill in the gaps on that intro and tell us something that uh, listeners might be surprised to know about you. Thank you so much uh, for having me. I'm so thankful for this opportunity to talk about something that I think is really important and um, eager to support you and, and the principals and leaders you work with in any way I can. So that was a pretty robust intro. Thank you. Um, uh, something that people might not know about me is that I, well, I'm originally from Connecticut. I'm an East Coast gal now living in California, but in between in 2018, 2019, I lived in Sydney, Australia for the year. And I did a study there interviewing secondary school leaders in New South Wales, which is the state where Sydney is, about how they um, respond to incidents of racism and xenophobia in their schools. So I got to talk to a lot of really interesting Australian school leaders and uh, have lots of great transcripts with really great Australian expressions and Australian accents. That's a neat story. And just so listeners know, you're sitting in your place in Santa Barbara, California today, and I'm in Oklahoma, and you've already begun helping your students with some distance learning. It looks so different across the country. And I also know from your bio, Carolyn, that you did several years of work in New York, and we could talk maybe a little bit about that later if we have some bonus time. But thank you so much for the opportunity to spend some time with you because just a couple of weeks ago, I became aware of a report that you and several others had published called Supports for Students and Immigrant Families. And, and I reached out because in the work that I've been doing with principals, one of the conversations we've been having during this pandemic is how do we make sure that the students who we know need the most to be in schools, including our disenfranchised and often that includes immigrant families, how do we know that we're still reaching them during this time? And for principal managers listeners who have listened to my previous episode, you know that in episode 207 and 208, I mentioned the conversations that I've been having with other leaders about numbers that they're seeing in their communities where sometimes black and Hispanic families especially are not returning to school as in high as uh, percentage numbers as white counterpart students. So today's conversation is really a focus on what you've been learning about the studies that you guys have been doing. So I just want to jump there first, Carolyn, what prompted you and the other researchers to work on this publication, Supports for Students and Immigrant Families? So this, our brief is part of a series of briefs that the Annenberg Institute based at Brown University and Results for America, an organization that works to get data and data help decision makers make data driven decisions. Um, they 
brought together researchers. What it started with, they solicited topics of interest and sort of areas of interest and concern from their extended network of policymakers, practitioners, district leaders, school leaders, basically saying, well, what are you thinking about? What are you struggling with? What topics are you do you need research to help you make decisions as you're thinking about reopening schools, whatever schools look like, or starting the, the 2020-2021 school year? So it was that way, and there was this really amazing, I think it was a Google spreadsheet where people, hundreds of people, wrote in different topics that they were interested in and, and needed researchers' help. And so then the folks, I got connected to the folks in Annenberg because supports for immigrant students was one of the buckets, you know, questions about credit recovery or learning loss, building facilities, students in temporary housing or homeless students, uh, students with special needs, how do you support them? What does the research say the best strategies might be? And there's very little research, well, although it's amazing how these fast turnaround research about strategies in time of COVID or a pandemic, but there isn't a real huge research base because thankfully we haven't had a similar pandemic in, in our lifetimes. Mm -hmm. But um, so I was engaged or invited to, to work on a brief about immigrant students and we sort of split off. There is a brief underway on uh, that I'm not leading because I'm not an expert in language acquisition, but specifically how to support English learners in a time in, in virtual education and all of the other things. But we thought that the experiences and the, the needs and assets and challenges that students and immigrant families might be having, some of which relate to language, but many of which are not about language acquisition and learning English, um, it sort of merited its own brief. So with Adam Strom from Reimagining Migration and Veronica Boxmancia from Project Zero at Harvard, we came together and tried to bring, and, and they had a sort of a template, right? They, they wanted us to break down the issue, identify strategies that show promise or that might be considered and research that supports these ideas for these strategies and examples of places where they might be trying strategies. And then also strategies that we wouldn't recommend, that research says are not well supported in responding to whatever problem, in this case, supporting immigrants. That's great, such a great summary and introduction. And I just want to say, Carolyn, to the Principal Matters listeners, because uh, I have listeners who are suburban and urban, rural across the U.S. in different settings, some with large immigrant populations and some with really small. But listeners, if you, I will link to this article or this brief in the show notes, and I just encourage you to take a look at it. One of the things I really appreciated about it, Carolyn, was how quickly you broke that down into application and something that a school leader could look at and not have to spend an hour studying, but could really digest in several minutes to get a, a simple but but stronger understanding of some takeaways for what he or she should or should not be doing during this time. So I'd like to begin first with just asking you, as we think about school leaders that are reopening schools in a variety of ways during the pandemic, what are some of the key insights from your brief that they should keep in mind? So, you know, it, this could go in so many ways, but I, I think not only specific to student, young people and immigrant families. And by immigrant families, I mean, there, there can be immigrants themselves. And so in the, it, it's very confusing because in sort of regular parlance, first generation often means you're the first generation born in the US. But in the immigration world of scholarship, first generation means you're an immigrant. Um, and second generation means you're a child, you're a U.S. born child of at least one immigrant parent. So when we talk about children in immigrant families, they themselves can be immigrants or they can be 
children with at least one immigrant parent. And when we're talking about sort of the statistics, 90% of, of children are US born, second generation immigrants. So about 20 million children, 25% of the US school age population has at least one foreign born parent. And it's, that's 14% of the US population are immigrants, but really only 10% of kids in K-12 schools now are immigrants themselves. So it's, yeah. it's not just newcomers that we're talking about, right? There are unique circumstances for, and, and many schools and districts that had never before had immigrant populations are now receiving newcomers. And then there was a whole flood of unaccompanied minors from Central America, right? But when we're talking, when I'm talking about children, immigrant families, it can include a much larger swath. And it's not only low income Latinx young people, which is people automatically go to. So immigrants, some children, immigrant families are from the highest income, highest educated families. In general, educators are less worried about their well-being, particularly in times of pandemic, because we think about the overlapping challenges of uh, poverty, of unemployment and undocumented status, language barriers, navigating a new system. And so in general, much of these supports and the strategies are focused on perhaps the, the students and immigrant families who might have additional challenges like poverty and, and um, language challenges. So with that said, communication is a really, is a sort of front and center, right? If, if families and their students can't get the information, then they can't act on it and they can't engage in education as much as, as schooling as much as possible, right? And so that means understanding, not relying on just one mode of, of communication. Yes, the digital divide has been much reduced, but it still exists. So emails, and some people might not have email, and text might work for some folks, in-person, phone call, as much as you can cover your ground, I think you're going to get get access to more people, right? Automated mm -hmm. phone calls. And then, in what languages are you providing the information? Google Translate, it's better that it exists than it doesn't exist, but in some ways, it's a really dangerous tool because it could do a really poor job. And so... Of course, it's expensive to have translation and interpretation services, especially when it's multiple languages and maybe there's only a small population that speaks a certain language. It is an investment that's really worthwhile, both to get that information out and symbolically to show families, we care, we want you to understand how what's going on. We want to engage you, we want to support you. And so that means where there are immigrant, immigrant families, there are religious organizations, community organizations, social service organizations, there are resources in your communities that are finding out how to effectively communicate and support and uh, these families. So in, in, as many partnerships as you can create, I think is an opportunity. It doesn't mean suddenly having a magic pot of money where you can hire expert translators. I understand that, especially in a time of financial stress like this, but it goes so far in, and when many young children have parents who might not speak or read in English. And so if you don't, if those parents aren't getting the information, the kids are not getting the information. So it really is a worthwhile investment. And I think that's something that school leaders know, already know, and are making a lot of efforts to do. But I, it, it just, it, we can, I can't emphasize it enough at a time like this when people are without information and alienated and not alienated, but isolated and, um, 
it's a it's a whole new world. So figuring out translation and and thinking about what sort of community organizations and relationships that the school districts can leverage um, are, are some strategies. I think um, you know one not in the brief, but something that's I've been thinking a lot about that over that relates to concerns about privacy and concerns particularly with young people in undocum and undocumented families or mixed status families. You know, many schools have policies that you must have your video on at all times. And there's, I understand a lot of the rationale. On the other hand, I think school leaders and teachers have to really think and, and, and learn about the range of conditions in which students are participating in Zoom. Maybe there are seven people living in a one bedroom apartment and something's going on that the child does not want the teachers and their peers to see. On top of that, undocumented families have major privacy concerns with online. There is so much unknown. There is so much fear about ICE and, and what could happen that being really clear about privacy, again, if things aren't translated, parents can't know that their children's privacy and their privacy is protected. So it has to be in ways that families can understand and ensuring that that privacy is, is, is going to be protected. Um, and so being really thoughtful, whatever policy is created, being really thoughtful about the potential implications, it's not a, a classroom full, don't assume that it's a classroom full of English speaking US citizens where all the children have their own bedrooms in a quiet place with, with perfectly working Wi. And I think the more you can create maybe even an advisory group that represents the different communities that you're serving, then you'll be aware of some of the the challenges or some of the inadvertent things that the cons unintended consequences of a policy like you must be on video at all time. So thinking about privacy, thinking about what's reasonable to ask young people or students of all ages in terms of independent work. Because if a parent is working, doesn't speak or read in the language, isn't familiar with the ways in which the education system functions and what it means to do a book report, then assigning a child a book report is, is just gonna be a recipe for, for frustration and potential failure for that child and their family. So thinking about, and, then, and thinking about what resources, again, with those community organizations or libraries, some schools are opening to after school supports for a very small number of students where they can have the, the teacher or the paraprofessionals provide that because there is a lot of evidence about the, the value of after school or additional tutoring and support, particularly around homework for immigrant students. Mm -hmm. So that is one area in which there is research that can transfer so that those additional, but, but not all students and families are equally have equal capacity at home to comply or to fulfill the expectations of homework or, or that kind of work. So um, thinking about, and that could be a, a question of differentiation, that could be a way in which the, the teacher can work differently with different groups of students. And I, I think there's a host of other strategies, that, but it, it's really thinking about um, the implications of what you're expecting or assigning. And then I shouldn't leave it for last, but T attending to students' social and emotional needs and recognizing the kinds of trauma that young people and immigrant families might be experiencing that will look different from other trauma that other students have. Many students, many young people are experiencing trauma and anxiety and heightened stress in this moment. But if there are fears about deportation layered on top of that, if there are, and, and we know that 
uh, immigrant children are, are more likely to live in poverty and that lower income families are harder hit and, and by the financial crisis associated with the pandemic. So all of those are compounded. And really before you can attend to any of the learning questions, a student's social emotional well-being has to be addressed and has to be front and center. So even though I left it as an afterthought, which is not what it was, I should have said it first, it really is kind of the, the heart of what I think school leaders should be thinking about when they're when students are returning. What are the challenges and how with these additional barriers of not being in person in many cases, how can we make sure our students are have the supports, the psychological, the mental, the health supports they need to then be able to engage academically. And part of that is creating a classroom or a school environment in which they feel safe. And that also means addressing questions about racism and anti-immigrant sentiment and xenophobia. We're living in a, in a really heightened time where anti-blackness anti is at front and center of a lot of the conversations and, and, and people's experience. So this is a real opportunity for, for schools and school leaders to figure out, okay, how do we leverage this moment and set our young people up for success to be able to learn in this new way, hopefully temporarily. Wow, that's so rich. And again, <laughs> I want Principal Matters listeners to know that I'll, I'll link to this brief on the show notes uh, for my website. But Carolyn, thank you for those, for, for those takeaways. And, and I think in those, you covered both some of the recommendations for families, but also some of the things that educators should have consider avoiding. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I know from looking at the, the other work that you've done um, when you lived in New York and in the, the books that you've written too, that part of the studies that you've done prior to this brief have been on ways that students, especially in diverse or immigrant communities, don't always have access to the options that we think that they do. And so uh, I don't know if you want to if you want to go there for a few minutes, but I wanted to ask you that question when we were together, because I know you've done a lot of work when you lived in New York on some of the mixed results. Like for instance, the school choice options had in New York for decades. And I'm just um, curious as a researcher and as a practitioner, some of the concerns that you have as we step into this pandemic where we may unintentionally mirror some of those same barriers. Yeah. So I, I think the, the common thread might be the assumption that, creating or opening an opportunity to everyone means that everyone has an equal chance of accessing that opportunity. So that's sort of some of the questions I was interrogating around school choice in New York City, where there's a mandatory choice process for high school and students are not automatically assigned. There's no default option and they have up to 750 choices of variable quality defined in many ways, one of which might be graduation rates, right? But if you make it, will they all come evenly? Will all students um, be able to identify schools in which they are more likely to be successful? And will they have equal ways of accessing those schools? Short answer, no, when some parents are paying $500 an hour for a high school choice consultant and other students don't even know that to get into some of the most prestigious schools, you have to take an exam or put a portfolio together, right? So underlying, and, and I'm, I, I sort of position myself as a researcher as not just a school choice critic, but someone who's really interested in exploring how a policy is or is not working and for whom and identifying ways in which maybe it could be updated and changed and revised thinking it's with the assumption that school choice is not going away. It's not suddenly going to be dismantled. So if it's here, let's explore it. Let's examine it empirically. Let's try to understand what's working and what isn't working from an equity lens and figuring out how to make things more equitable. 
So moving over to sort of schooling in the time of a pandemic, if you provide access to an iPad, does that mean everyone can then just use that iPad and whoop, everyone's ready? Does that mean that even picking up an iPad, everyone's gonna do it? Because if parents are afraid you're gonna ask for a government ID or you're coming on the public property and what might happen to you, right? Do we know how to download an app? And it could be, this is not specific to being an immigrant or not being English dominant. You know, it could be my parents. Or we know that seniors have technological challenges, right? But just the assembly, there's this photo and I live in, in California now. So in, in Salinas, California, I don't know if you've seen it of these kids going to the Taco Bell to get a hot, to get Wi-Fi access. And it was really like tweeted out all over the place and the district immediately responded and got that family a hotspot, but it was really symbolic of like, that. Giving kids an iPad doesn't mean that you solved all the problems. And so really trying to, and, and I, don't, I don't know what all the challenges that different kinds of families and, and young people, immigrant or not, um, might have with, with it once they have the iPad or the Chrome book but I think just plugging in is, is just the beginning and me and, and so I'm, I'm returning to something that's not in the brief is this idea of kind of an advisory council or really figuring out how can you tap in how can you without making it an additional burden for the folks who are already overburdened and managing a million things but how can we understand the implications of any decision or choice we're making and then try to minimize that the, the the sort of negative impact or the additional burden it creates, or then providing the, the supports in order for them to be able to equitably participate. Those are great takeaways. And, and as I've talked to principals in other states too, so many of them have seen um, accelerated numbers of students that are choosing online virtual options full-time outside of their district's offerings. And so there are a lot of for-profit groups or even publicly funded groups that don't have the same um, expectations as public schools to that are that are growing rapidly right now and and i guess the question is how do we know that we're serving our most disenfranchised populations just because they suddenly have access to a computer and in a virtual offering and so i think the, the challenge that so many principals have when you boil it down to the community level as you've just talked about is making sure that within your own community are you being able to identify who those kids are and still being able to identify whether they're being served because it's possible that they may need to come back to your population if they're not receiving the service that they are. And Carolyn, right before our interview today, I was listening to a fantastic um, summary from This American Life, a podcast that they had just done on the reopening of schools in several settings across the U.S. And in one of the schools they were, they were talking to, the um, staff and administration opened school for a population of around 200 kids and only half of the kids showed up that day, even though they had felt like they did all the communication that they needed. And so just like you suggested, they broke their team down, split those kids into calling trees. And within the, by the end of the next couple of days, they had reached all but three families to find out why are you not here? How can we help you? What are your concerns? What can we do to get you back into school? And they were able to re-engage those families and bring them back in. So when I, when I look at your brief and I hear all of the concerns you guys have expressed for, for, for educators to keep in mind, I wanted to share this content because as I've had conversations with leaders, so many of them are just trying to figure out how are we going to do school? And some of them haven't moved beyond how are we going to do school to how are we going to reach the ones who aren't doing school? Or how are we going to reach the ones who didn't show back up? So thank you so much for the work that you've done on this brief and and. And, and I know the, the co-authors on this as well. Thank you for mentioning them. And I'll link to, to the contacts in, in the show notes. And, and also for the work that you've been doing uh, nationally on, on looking at how communities can access 
education in school too. And I know you're experiencing this as a parent, but I wanted to give you an opportunity for any other takeaways that you might want to share with listeners for them to be considering as they're leading schools moving forward. Yeah, I think what you just, I hadn't heard the This American Life episode, but I think you or they are tapping into so much of this is relationship driven, right? And and I don't, some school leaders and some school districts are more successful than others of finding ways to develop strong, trusting relationships with some of the harder to reach families. And often it comes through, there's a parent at the school who was in a similar position 10 years ago, and they were recently arrived from Mexico or a different country, or they're new to the town, and they know, and then they can, and they become a trusted figure in certain communities. And so the school leader knows, okay, I should talk to Carolyn because she is, other people listen to her and they, and they trust her. And from there, and so if, if there are kids missing or groups of kids missing, figuring out who are the, the sort of the contact people within those communities or who is a trusting person in that network that I can leverage. Um, because that's where so much, a lot of this is about trust and, and ultimately people want their kids to be in a safe educational space, whether that be in their bedroom or in a, in a school building. And so, um, using all of, of the, the tools in your toolbox, particularly that relationship building tool, I think is really can't be underestimated. Um, yeah, yeah, and I, I guess, I was talking to you about this other project that I have on, on pause now about the impact of how school leaders are responding to immigration enforcement. And just remembering that those challenges are not on pause for families, right? So all of the other stuff like fear of deportation or like financial stress or, or health, those are all compounded. So it's not just, sometimes we can be so focused on, are we gonna open the school? How are the kids gonna be safe? How are they not going to spread or contract COVID? What are we going to do with our, um, our our older staff because there's different concerns? How are we going to get buses and transportation and food and all of those things? And and those are clearly the most important thing for a school leader right now. But families and kids are living in a time where all of these other issues that always existed are worse. And and now safe a safe school space for seven hours a day doesn't exist. So. Uh, that wasn't cheery, but I think just remembering that there's so many other stressors going on in, in young people's lives and their families' lives, and um, that school for many of them is is the safe space, is that sanctuary, and if it's not there, then figuring out how to supplement. Yeah, that's such a great way to wrap this conversation up, and principal managers, listeners, I just want to remind you of something Carolyn just said, which you know, which is that relationships are the bedrock for how you serve your communities, and so you may be listening to this, and you're already reopened, um, and you're managing all of those constraints, and, and you barely have time to listen to this podcast, or you may be preparing to open, or you may be distant learning right now, and getting ready to transition back. It's so different across every community, but regardless of your situation, the the only way that you're going to effectively have a school community is by building the community, by re-engaging those relationships in every single way that you can. And Carolyn, I just had a conversation with a high school principal last week who told me that one of the things that shocked her the most when they reopened, because they have kids in masks and social distance, was the amount of 
social emotional support those kids needed. Um, and for those who have chosen to stay home, the fear that a lot of them have too, where they need additional um, supports. And so she's done a lot more referrals at the beginning of this year to therapy and to counseling for her kids than she has done in years past. And so that's just one anecdotal example of what's happening across this entire nation and in the world, frankly. And so while we're reaching out to kids, while we're working with our student populations, I, I just want to thank you for your, the work that you guys have done and been providing this brief, giving educators another way to be thinking about the most vulnerable in their communities. And sometimes the students who aren't going to speak up for themselves because they may not have the same access to you as a school leader as other kids do, or their parents may not feel as confident to reach out to you. So whatever it takes to, to make sure that you're reaching your communities, make sure you've asked the question, who's not here? And then figure out ways that you can connect with those community supports to find those students, reconnect with them, and make sure they know that you're supporting them. Well, Carolyn, as we're wrapping up this conversation, I just wanted to give listeners a way to contact, uh, connect with your information if, if you wanted to share a place where they can find your, your books or resources or the work that you're doing at the university, if they wanted to communicate with you. How could sure. They so I'm, I mean, my, it's a long email. I would just encourage you to go to my faculty page at the UC Santa Barbara, the Giverts Graduate School of Education. You can have my emails there. I have a Twitter account. You can message me that way, but I'm, I feel like you all are doing such hard the day-to-day work. And if there's any way that I can support that work or be helpful in any way, if I can run focus groups or interviews, I can use my, my researcher skills or I can, um, I, I really want to be a resource for all of you. And I appreciate the hard work you're doing. And I'm just really grateful for the chance to share some of the work that I, I've been, I've been thinking about. And yeah, so please get in touch with me. I, my email is my name at ucsb.edu. And I'll link that in the notes. Well, Carolyn, thank you so much. And Principal Matters listeners, thank you for everything that you do because what you do matters. And we'll talk to you soon. If you'd like other free resources like this one, you can check out all my posts at williamdparker.com. Thank you.